Hello and welcome to Free the Belly podcast with me, Luana Landolt-Dierger. On this podcast, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about why I decided to do this, my own journey to free my belly, and speak to some extraordinary and ordinary people about their own journey regarding the topic. So, on to why I chose the name Free the Belly. Well, the reason for it is that I have found that through my own quest for better health, that many of us hold tension in the center of our bodies, and that this can get in the way of us living pain-free and authentic lives. We all have tensions or blockages on some level that can manifest themselves very differently, whether that be physical, mental, spiritual, or even emotional. And we're all at different stages of this journey of overcoming these limitations. Some of us are still identifying them while others are actively working on it or even resolving them. Some of these tensions may be holding in our breath as a result of trauma, suffering from digestive or gut issues that keep us from doing the things that we love, or even sucking in our tummies to appear in a certain way. It could be not allowing our gut feeling to be heard in our professional and personal lives, repressing our creativity to fit into social norms and perfectionist ideals, or expressing self-isolation due to withholding from emotional intimacy. The list can go on and on. On this podcast, I will speak to different individuals from all walks of life, medical and health professionals, motivational speakers, business owners, mothers, parents, and many more who will share with us their stories about how they free their bellies and how they help others free their own. Hello and welcome to this penultimate episode of Free the Belly with James Dowler on the power of breath work. When any piece of technology isn't working right, my mom always says, have you tried turning it off and on again? Surprisingly, most of the time it works. And today, our guest James will be talking about the equivalent of that switch off button in our breath work and as a means to rewire our biocomputers. Although the tendency is to think that for complex things to work properly, the solution must be complex too. But our bodies don't quite play that game. Not only is the solution somewhat simple, but it lies within. James helps individuals alleviate stress and anxiety through their breath. His aim is to provide people with knowledge and practices that help rewire the nervous system and in doing so, restore people's ability to regulate their emotions and build resilience. Having battled with glandular fever and chronic fatigue at a young age, James discovered a profound connection between the mind and the body. Through meditation and breath work, he found relief from anxiety and fear, but most importantly, freedom of choice. And now he shares his transformative and all-encompassing insights through education and tips of practice. Make sure that you stick around to the end of this episode as James will guide us through a brief wind-down practice that you can use during overwhelming stressful moments, but also on a day-to-day -day basis. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's such an honor to have you, James, after so many years of following you, especially mid-pandemic, putting a face and a tangible voice behind it all. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to the conversation. Could you tell us some more about your journey and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So um, where to start? I guess the best place to start is probably over 10 years ago now, uh, just over 10 years ago. So when I was 18, I got um, glandular fever, which is otherwise known as Epstein-Barr virus. Um, and 
for one reason or another, the infection of that virus turned into chronic fatigue. I think in hindsight, looking back on it now, I, I basically had an eating disorder in my teens and wasn't nourishing my body properly. And then when I got ill with glandular fever, um, it meant my immune system wasn't able to fight off and clear the virus as efficiently and as quickly as it might. And as a result, I got this sort of post-viral fatigue, which has labeled chronic fatigue. And that lasted quite a while and I had it pretty badly. So at one point I was more or less bed bound and definitely sort of my late teenage years and early twenties were very much spent in not a great place, struggling to walk to the end of the road without having a flare up in symptoms for a long period of time, a lot of fatigue, a lot of digestive issues. And then I somehow managed to get myself to university. Um, but whilst I was at university, I had a lot of chronic pain that came with the fatigue and the digestive issues. And Effectively, just wasn't in a very good place physically, emotionally, mentally. And it was when I developed chronic pain in my knee that I went to go and see a, someone who's labeled as a specialist pain physio. And he was basically the first person who explained to me the relationship between the body and the mind and how what was going on in my body, specifically in relation to the pain, but also potentially in relation to fatigue and digestive issues, might um, have something to do with what was going on in my mind. And he suggested that I start a meditation practice and it didn't click like that, but effectively I soon started to see that a lot of my symptoms, specifically the pain, were a result of effectively perpetual state of anxiety or fear I was in. And it was manifesting as a, as a pain response in my body. So I was, I was worried and I was fearful about walking distances or doing too much for fear of it creating pain in my body. And the fear in and of itself was then creating this pain response in my body as a sort of protective uh, mechanism. And as I started to see that pattern and specifically started to work to downregulate uh, my nervous system to move into, in simple terms, a more settled and relaxed state using a meditation practice, the pain effectively just went. And that, I guess, opened me up to the power of the mind. I still had some fatigue and some digestive issues going on that I worked with a functional medicine practitioner on that really helped, but specifically in relation to the pain, the practice of meditation and understanding this sort of mind-body relationship and disorder really helped to alleviate the symptoms and, and, and dissipate the pain from the body. And, and that opened me up to the proud mind. I was really interested in meditation and started going off on retreats and um, building a little bit of a meditation practice. And during that time I'd managed to finish university had gone into a job in advertising and was starting to effectively juggle this these two worlds where I was um, working nine to five doing brand strategy for different brands whilst then going off on meditation retreats and, and at quite a young age I must have been like 23 or 24 at this point and it was super confusing um, I was doing quite well in advertising and had friends and family and colleagues who were all very impressed with the way that my career was shaping and the sort of first steps I was making up the career ladder, but sort of deep down underneath, something just didn't feel right. And um, I was really eager to go off on these meditation retreats and spend weeks in silence. And then we'll come back and having had quite an amazing experience, um, would sort of be met with like, what are you doing with your life? And why are you going off and spending a week in silence? And I couldn't really understand why I was spending days sitting in front of a computer screen in an office. And that was really confusing at a young age. It sounds quite romantic talking about it now, but it, it definitely was confusing and I was pretty lost in it. And it sort of culminated in me 
leaving my job in advertising. Um, the intention at the time was to learn to meditate properly. And I felt like I just needed space and time away from um, I guess the corporate environment to work out what I sort of wanted to do with my life and how I wanted to live and what I wanted to do in the form of work and spent some more time on retreat, went to Buddhist monastery and it was when I came back from a retreat in Wales that I stumbled into a breathwork workshop. There's a specific mentality of breathwork called conscious connected breathing or sort of breathwork for emotional release in which you use the breath to process and clear emotional charge from the body, um, what one might refer to as trauma, to effectively move into a more, I guess, a more coherent, clear and balanced state um, and had a really amazing experience with it. Um, definitely hadn't had such a visceral and tangible experience with a practice. Um, I was crying, I was coughing, my arms and legs felt they had sort of really strong pins and needles in it. And I, at the end of a workshop, was really curious about the practice and was confused as to why I'd never heard about it before and wanted to learn more. And that left me in a place of starting to go off and do workshops and come across different teachers and I guess really get curious with the breath, which culminated in me deciding to train in it. Um, I spent six months training with a teacher called Alan Dolan, um, specifically in that modality of breath work. And then I started teaching it and was working one-on-one -on -one and in small groups and then which was going okay and I sort of did that for six months and then COVID happened and everything went online and I think that was when things sort of at least from a breathwork perspective for me started to move and what I was doing became a little bit more well known I think simply because I was able to reach more people I was teaching through Instagram live all of a sudden which mm -hmm. I never thought I would do but that sort of meant my reach was potentially anyone who's on Instagram and could reach anyone anywhere around the world and yeah, I suddenly went from sort of teaching 15 people in studios in London to sort of 400 people on Instagram Live. And that definitely rocketed, I guess, my exposure as a breathwork teacher. In the last sort of couple of years, what sort of happened for me, both on a personal level, but also on a professional level, is I've oriented and moved from, I guess, teaching uh, more of a conscious, connected breathing, emotional release styles of breathwork to actually teaching more styles of breathwork that might get framed under the umbrella of nervous system regulation. Um, mm. So when I first trained in breathwork, the truth is I didn't even really know what the nervous system was. And definitely my the sixth month of my initial training wasn't actually taught about the autonomic nervous system, which seems a little mad to reflect upon now. But all my work is very much oriented through a nervous system lens and, and specifically around teaching people how to use their breath to downregulate their nervous system, which in simple terms means to move in a greater state of relaxation and stillness unwind stress physiology to unwind underlying tones of hypervigilance um, or alertness or activation or mobilization whatever phrase best resonates with you and yeah just induce a slightly more settled balanced state as one moves through for every day and at the moment that tends to look like me teaching um, a couple of sessions a week for instagram and then i'm in the process of building an app which will effectively be a home hopefully for housing breathwork sessions that are oriented specifically around that downregulating the nervous system, activating uh, the parasympathetic branch, which I'm sure we'll come on to, and uh, moving on into a more relaxed and settled state. I mean, I think already your platform has so much content and uh, I think it's incredible how today even, before jumping on this call, I've got back-to-back -back recordings and I did your performance breathing technique and I thought it was so interesting how I was able to use breath work to step into a more focused and 
energized place. We tend to think that breath work is to, to downregulate and calm down, but also you can use it to hype yourself up. So on that note, could you explain a bit more on, on you know, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system? Uh, I know it's been, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, at least in my field, it's been explained and explained, but I think every person has a different way of explaining it and it might catches people's um, attention differently. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the autonomic nervous system is effectively this background operating system in the body that governs everything that happens automatically. So your heart rate, your digestion, regulation of your blood sugar and your breath are all part of your autonomic nervous system. So think about anything that happens automatically without you having conscious control of it. Now the primary role of your autonomic nervous system that sits above that is to scan your environment for cues of safety and cues of danger and to shift your physiology and specifically those automatic functions that it governs dependent upon what it finds. So even as we sit here now in conversation, your nervous system is scanning your environment and specifically picking up on my cues. So the tone of my voice, what I look like, what I'm wearing, um, and detecting either a cue of safety or a cue of danger. And dependent upon what it finds, in simple terms, it will shift into becoming dominant in one of two states, either the sympathetic branch of your nervous system, which is otherwise known as the mobilization branch of your nervous system, which is the branch of your nervous system that will be initially activated if your nervous system detects a cue of danger, or the parasympathetic branch of your nervous system, which is otherwise known as the slowing down branch of your nervous system, which Mm. is the branch of your nervous system that will be activated if your nervous system detects a cue of safety. So in the world in which we live today, which can sometimes be quite high stress, quite high pressured, Mm. um, our nervous system can become slightly activated and what we might refer to as sympathetic dominance simply as a result of our nervous system detecting or picking up on cues of danger as we move through every day. Danger might not be the best word to use, but the reason I use the word danger is that the nervous system or your nervous system is designed the same way it was thousands of years ago. So if a lion were to jump out from behind a tree when you were a hunter-gatherer on the savannas, your mm. nervous system would detect like you a danger and that sympathetic branch of your nervous system would be activated, moving you into a mobilized state. Now, the equivalent of that today, we don't have lions jumping out from behind trees, but we do have bills to pay, deadlines to meet, relationships to maintain. And these stimuli can elicit the same stress response in the body as if a lion were to walk into your room now. So your nervous system detects some level of threat or danger warrior anxiety the nervous system moves into that sympathetic dominant state and as a result you mobilize this what we might refer to as fight or flight energy in which you secrete adrenaline and cortisol your sweat glands are activated and you move into this effectively highly mobilized state the way that breath work can be really powerful and the way that i teach breath work and um what i try and educate people in relation to is that when you take conscious control of your breath when you breathe in certain ways, you're effectively sending a signal to your nervous system. And the reason why you're able to do this is that your breath is the only part of your autonomic nervous system, but is both automatic. So it happens without you having conscious control of it, but you're also able to take conscious control of your breath. And when you take conscious control of your breath, you're able to effectively tone and shape your nervous system in a certain way. So when you slow your breath down, When you breathe nice and slowly, when you breathe nice and low into your belly and your lower ribs, you send a cue of safety to your nervous system and you tell your nervous system that you're safe. Because that's the same way you would breathe as if there was to be no imminent threat in your immediate surrounding environment. 
Conversely, if you breathe a little bit quicker, if you breathe in and out through the mouth, if you breathe uh, into your upper chest, you're going to be activating that sympathetic branch of your nervous system, the mobilization branch of your nervous system, because that's the same way you would breathe if a lion were to walk into your room now. So we can effectively use the breath in, uh, we can use the breath in lots of ways. So broadly speaking, in terms of down regulation or activation, slowing the breath down will help to uh, down regulate the nervous system, toning the nervous system towards that parasympathetic dominance in which we'll feel slightly more relaxed, slightly more settled. Breathing slightly quicker, breathing in and out through the mouth will help to activate the system and move into a slightly more mobilized state. What I will say and what I tend to believe and have a slight bias towards now is that it's pretty rare that anyone in, well, that most people in the world in which we live today need more activation in their system. Um, it tends to be um, a little bit more helpful to learn how to downregulate at least first. And then if someone really does need a little bit of a boost, then um, they have the ability to do so. But generally speaking, what I sort of orient around teaching is how can we use the breath to dampen that sympathetic overdrive or sympathetic dominance whilst bring online and activating the parasympathetic so to move us into a more relaxed and settled state. So for example currently I'm, I'm very excited about what I'm doing about this podcast and I feel like I'm, I'm in a good flow as far as work and I do feel like I'm at a higher pace but I, I think it was you that said that it's very similar energy to when you're stressed and they mm -hmm. activate the same level of your nervous system right? Is there such a way to activate a good sense of excitement and a bad, like, is it okay to be working and continuing in this flow? Or is it still sending the same message to my body that you are in flight or fight? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and the truth is, this is where sort of nervous system science gets a little bit more complex. Um, so I guess what I've laid out in terms of the initial nervous system framework is this, what tends to be taught on a foundational level in terms of You've got this sympathetic branch of your nervous system, which is the mobilization branch of your nervous system. And then you've got the parasympathetic branch of your nervous system, which is sort of slowing down rest and digest branch of your nervous system. The slightly more complex, accurate model is sometimes referred to as polyvagal theory, uh, which was created by Dr. Stephen Porges in the 90s. And the key understanding in relation to polyvagal theory is the sympathetic branch of your nervous system, so the mobilization branch of your nervous system, isn't all bad. We need a certain amount of healthy sympathetic energy for us to move for our day for us to get up in the morning when we go for a run we activate the sympathetic branch of our nervous system as i'm speaking now there'll be a certain amount of sympathetic energy in my system just because there's a little bit more uh, activation i'm speaking i'm having to concentrate a little bit into what i'm about what i'm saying and that's going to be creating a little bit of activation in my system and the sympathetic branch of my nervous system will be a little bit more online the key thing in relation to it is whether there's a tone underneath that of whether my nervous system feels safe or whether my nervous system feels it's in danger. So if I feel safe whilst I'm in conversation to you or I'm going on a run or any form of activity that requires a certain amount of energy, then there's going to be a, what might be referred to as a healthy amount of sympathetic energy in my system. The time that it becomes a little bit unhealthy is if for prolonged periods of time I perceive some level of threat or danger in my environment. So if I was really, really scared about speaking to you now or really, really worried or, or perceived there being some level of threat in relation to, you know, worried about what you might be thinking about what I'm saying or worried about what the listeners are going to be thinking, then there will be a certain amount of fight or flight energy in my system. And over prolonged periods of time, that isn't necessarily particularly healthy. So the key thing to that is can we 
mobilize a healthy amount of sympathetic energy. And a key way to do that is effectively to feel safe. The other important thing to understand in relation to polyvagal theory, and the other key understanding to it, is that the parasympathetic actually has two branches. So uh, poly is effectively another word for many, and then vagal refers to uh, your, your vagus nerve, which is a main pathway of your parasympathetic nervous system. The two branches within the parasympathetic are your, uh, your ventral vagal, which is effectively your social engagement system. So the key understanding to this is that we're, we're social beings, and your ventral vagal, your ventral um, vagus nerve, comes online when you feel like you want to engage and be in the world and socially activate. So right now, there'll be a certain amount of ventral energy in my system as I'm talking to you, as I'm engaging in you. And this is a really healthy nervous system state to be in. We want there to be a certain amount of ventral vagal energy in our system. The other branch to the parasympathetic is your dorsal vagal. And your dorsal vagal is responsible when you feel safe for the rest and digest functionality of your parasympathetic nervous system. But it is also when you feel in threat or danger, um, your shutdown or your immobilization response. And this will tend to manifest as feelings of depression, wanting to isolate, wanting to withdraw. The polyvagal ladder, which is, I guess, the framework that gets given within polyvagal theory, is that we effectively want at the top to be in as much ventral energy as possible, which mm -hmm. means that we feel relaxed, we feel settled, but we also want to be in, connect with ourselves and the world around us and the people within that. When we then feel stressed or anxious, there tends to be a certain amount of sympathetic energy that is mobilized and that fight or flight response comes alive. If that fight or flight response is active for a long time or in that fight or flight energy we feel overwhelmed, then the system tends to then shut down and we then fall into this dorsal um, immobilization response in which we then tend to withdraw, isolate. And symptoms on a physical level then start to manifest as things like fatigue, depression, um, rather than the more anxiety, stress-based symptoms that tend to orient around that fight or flight response. Hopefully that gives a little bit of understanding. It's a little bit complex, which is why I tend to not sometimes explain it too much, but um, hopefully some people can draw a little bit from that. Yeah, I think it's important and also by any means, we can listen to this over and over again and, and get a grasp of it as we as we go about it. You touched on the, the vagus nerve and relating back to, to the topic of freeing the belly. Mm. How do you see that sort of playing into, you know, the highway communicating between the mind and the body? And Yeah, I think it's important. It's important. I also think it's complex. I think there's a little bit of a, a tendency in the sort of online healing world at the moment to think that the vagus nerve can simply be healed or activated through engaging in very simple practices. Um, whereas I actually think it's a little bit more complex in relation to firstly, why the vagus nerve has become lacking in tone, which tends to be as a result of prolonged periods of stress and why that stress was there, but also in relation to its healing, I think it's a little bit more complex than just engaging in uh, one-off binary practices. The breath can be a really, really helpful tool to help to activate the vagus nerve. But for me, what's more important is the felt sense of safety, but as a result is then going to activate the vagus nerve. I don't tend to talk too much about the vagus nerve in, in my practice, or specifically I should say in relation to activating the vagus nerve directly. 
I'd like to talk more about how can we imbue a felt sense of safety using the breath, which mm. will indirectly then have an effect upon the vagus nerve. So that felt sense of safety is more important to me because your vagus nerve will be activated in the same way using breath work and imbuing that felt sense of safety as it will as if you go and engage with someone socially and feel safe in that person's presence. Just as if you were to go on a walk in nature and feel safe in the environment in which you're in, that's going to have a really nice effect of activating the vagus nerve. So really, I tend to try and look at it from a more holistic nervous system perspective of how can we imbue a greater feeling of safety? How can we, buzzword in nervous system world is how can we regulate more readily? And as a result, indirectly, our vagus nerve will become more toned. But rather than going after the vagus nerve directly, it's more how can we regulate the nervous system? How can mm. we feel more safe in ourselves? How can we feel safe in connection to others and that around us? And as a result, the vagus nerve sort of just takes care of itself. As an integrative nutrition health coach and NLP practitioner, I believe in a whole person approach to wellness. I know that it's not just about what you eat. It's also about your home environment, the work that you do, and the way that you approach life. And I don't know about you, but I'm personally sick of the one-size-fits-all approach to health that we so often see. That's why I offer a truly personalized coaching experience that takes into account your unique needs and goals. You might be looking to reduce stress, improve your diet, enjoying exercise or cooking, or simply want to find more balance and fulfillment in your life. Whatever your health goals are, one-to-one -one coaching can help you get there. Together we can build a health plan that feels authentic and sustainable for you. Because after all, you are unique and your health plan should be too. Book a discovery call today and take the first step towards a healthier, happier you. Head to the show notes to book a free call now. One of the great questions that someone said, what's the difference between the downregulation practice and then just the practice in itself? And you mentioned that the downregulation is, is extending the exhale for a long extended period of time to be able to, to downregulate, whether if you do it more of an equal inhale to exhale, it's more of a day-to-day -day practice. Yeah, there's so the sort of science in relation to parasympathetic activation is you elongate your exhale the longer than your inhale, you induce a greater parasympathetic activation more quickly. But actually, if you have equal length inhale to the exhale, you'll tone the parasympathetic branch of your nervous system and more specifically your vagus nerve more readily than if you were to elongate your exhale to longer than your inhale. So what yeah. that effectively means in terms of practicalities is that if you feel really, really stressed and overwhelmed, then the easiest way to shift your state and to move into more relaxed and settled place is to elongate your exhale to longer than your inhale. But if you don't feel massively stressed or overwhelmed and are looking to tone your nervous system over a period of time, then actually you're better off engaging in a practice whereby your inhale is to the equal length of your exhale. And that's a practice that's called um, coherent breathing. Um, the optimal breathing rate is around 5.5 .5 to 6. And that will help to tone your nervous system in a really nice way if that's what you would like to do. Yeah, and I think very important to incorporate both um in your day as as you as you go about it um i kind of see it as like the hit and the pilates or the yoga mm -hmm. they're extremely important one is working on the mu muscles underneath the muscles and the other one is really working on and the quick actions mm -hmm. and to go about um so with that um what does free the belly mean to you free the belly i think for me the thing that comes up i mean i've had a lot of digestive issues for lots of different reasons on a physiological level 
prolonged periods of being on roaccutane in my teenage years, antibiotics, and I got glandular fever, even working with functional medicine practitioners who put me on loads of antimicrobials. And then on an emotional level within that, I think I've been in like an underlying freeze response, or what might be referred to as, some people refer to as like a functional freeze, whereby it becomes very normal, normalized to be in a slightly uh, freezy state, um, where sort of isolation, withdrawal, time on one's own becomes very normalized. Um, and that's definitely shut off the motility and um, I guess functionality of my gut. I've had SIBO, um, SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, lots of digestive stuff. So I think free of belly for me very much uh, brings up a lot of the gastrointestinal difficulties that I've had and what comes with that. Um, and, and what I mean, what comes with that is, I guess, for me, a lot of it's been around fear of food, worried about what's going to inflame or bring on symptoms and also the all round confusion, uh, definitely from my perspective in relation to what to eat, what not to eat and the various and many rabbit holes that I've gone down in the nutritional therapy and functional medicine world. And then around that and specifically in relation to free the belly, what it feels like to me is having now worked through a lot of those symptoms and being in a much better place, the freedom that's come from and with having better gastrointestinal health and the freedom and choices that I'm able to make and mm. pursue and do and live my life um, as a result of being in a, in a slightly better place of health. The freedom of choice, I like that. I think it's so underrated how we forget we have the choice to do things and we mm. feel that our thoughts are dictating us and our lives are dictating us. What do you think is the the one thing, the one hang up that people are kind of skeptical of trying it out? I, th I think probably there's still an undertone um, of skeptability in relation to like, does it work? Is, is the science out there? I think also the simplicity of it to an extent. A lot yeah, of people... It's too good to be true. It's too easy yeah, for it to work. Completely. I think a lot of people want something that almost feels a little bit more complex or maybe is outside of themselves, but they, mm. um, or they don't, yeah, I think the simplicity of it, um, it's free, you can do it anywhere, anytime, any place, and. Um, the simplicity, yeah, the complexity, because it's not until you try it out that you can actually experience quite a bit of initial discomfort and initial frustration and then. Completely, completely. What would you, what would you recommend a skeptic listening to this? Um, I'd say if a skeptic's got this far in the podcast, then probably they might already be in. Um, <laughs> but I think from my point of view as a teacher, when I teach, especially in live sessions, um, the education is just important as the practice. And right. So I'd just say try and find it. If you're not going to practice with me, find, find a teacher that blends the two. So rather than just doing a breathwork practice, maybe find someone who spends a little bit of time talking about the breathwork practice, why you're doing what you're doing, mm. what, the, what the breath is why you're engaging in that practice like what the intention of the practice is and explains that through a sort of nervous system and brain lens and see if you can go with that rather than maybe a teacher who orients more towards just speaking about things like the felt sense and the body without really being without there really being a nervous system and brain lens that it, the practice is grounded upon yeah so is there any 
bad breathing. So what are the bad breathings and what are the breathings that we should be... Um... In terms of how to breathe moment to moment, day to day? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess generally speaking, moment to moment, day to day, we want to be breathing uh, first of all in and out through the nose. So your nose is very much designed to be uh, breathed in and out of. Your mouth is not. When you breathe in and out through the nose, you moisten, humidify the air and make the air as absorbable as possible once it reaches your lungs. But on a nervous system level, when you breathe in and out through your nose, your nose is connected to uh, your diaphragm, which is this dome sheet muscle in between your ribcage and your abdomen. And your diaphragm is connected to the parasympathetic branch of your nervous system, the slowing down branch of your nervous system. So when you breathe in and out through the nose, you help to activate uh, your diaphragm and use your diaphragm to breathe, which induces this greater state of uh, coherence and balance through the parasympathetic. Um, when you breathe in and out through the mouth, your mouth is connected to your chest. And in doing so, um, there's also tends to be a greater activation of your sympathetic, um, that mobilization branch of your nervous system when you breathe in and out through the mouth. So you want to be breathing in and out through the nose. That's both when we're awake and when we're asleep. Um, if you're breathing in and out through the mouth when you're asleep, you'll tend to wake up with a dry mouth and dehydrated. Um, if you breathe in and out through the mouth whilst you're asleep, you're not going to fall into a deep and restful night's sleep because there's going to be too much sympathetic activation in your nervous system, too much mm -hmm. mobilization. Um, the best way to ensure that your nasal breathing whilst asleep is to tape your mouth. And you can do this using like a little bit of myotape from a pharmacy. That's super, super important and can be tri quite transformative for people who um, have been mouth breathing for a long time, especially whilst asleep. So in and out through the nose, nice and low into the belly and into the lower ribs. Um, to ensure that you're using your diaphragm to breathe, you want to be able to feel a lateral expansion of your lower ribs on the inhale and then a lateral contraction. And that effectively is a good measure on the extent to which you're using those respiratory muscles and specifically your diaphragm to breathe. You also then want to breathe nice and lightly. So this is what tends not to be taught in, mm -hmm. um, I guess, breathwork, meditation, yoga circles. You want to breathe nice and lightly. Um, and the reason for that is that carbon dioxide is the primary, or the buildup of carbon dioxide in your blood is the primary stimulus to breathe. So yeah, I was just wondering, when you say lightly, I was, I was trying to do it this morning. Mm. Is it, I just imagined as if I had like a feather in front of my nose, mm -hmm. that the feather is barely moving. Is yeah, that, nice. Yeah, like, exactly. Oh, so, okay. So it's basically just breathing as little air as you possibly can. Um, mm. So it's the opposite of sort of breathing. It's breathing as little air as you possibly can, breathing as lightly as possible, still breathing nice and low into your belly and lower ribs. The reason for this is that the buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood is the primary stimulus to breathe, not a lack of oxygen. So when you hold your breath, that mm. sensation of air hunger that you get is not a lack of oxygen. It's your brain perceiving that there's too much carbon dioxide in the blood. Yeah. The higher our... Uh, sensitivity to the buildup of carbon dioxide, the lower our tolerance, the quicker our day-to-day -day breathing rate becomes. The higher our tolerance, the lower our sensitivity, the slower yeah. our day-to-day -day breathing rate becomes. And that's because the buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood is the primary stimulus to breathe. So the reason why we breathe lightly is the more carbon dioxide that we blow off, the higher our sensitivity becomes, the lower our tolerance, and the higher our sensitivity, the quicker our day-to-day -day breathing rate becomes. So we want to breathe as lightly as possible, so to increase our tolerance to the buildup of carbon dioxide, so to slow down our day-to-day -day breathing rate. The cycle that people who tend to exhibit stress and anxiety get caught in is that when we experience stress and anxiety, our breath quickens. 
because that fight or flight mechanism within the sympathetic branch of our nervous system is activated. When our breath quickens, we blow off more carbon dioxide. The more carbon dioxide that we blow off, the higher our sensitivity to the buildup of it becomes. The higher our sensitivity to the buildup of carbon dioxide, the quicker our breathing rate becomes. The quicker our breathing rate becomes, the more stress and anxiety we experience because our breath is sending a signal to our brain that there's some form of danger in either our internal or external environment as a result of our breath being quick. So we want to try and slow down our day-to-day breathing rate. And the best way of doing that is increasing our tolerance to build up a carbon dioxide by breathing nice and lightly. And I think what really helped me throughout it is that you remind us many times if you feel like you're lacking or mm, restricted, yeah. but it's it's what you feel because you truly are not. So really reassuring yeah. that we know that we're not actually running out of air. Yeah. Completely. The sensation of air hunger is your brain perceiving that there's too much carbon dioxide rather than there being a lack of oxygen in your blood. And um, would you be able to share with us as a little wind down, um, maybe perhaps a wind down that you apply yourself um, or one that you have found to be the most efficient? um... Yeah, for sure. In terms of a quick practice. Yeah. Do you want me to guide it or just? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. So if, if, if you're listening now, you can just slowly begin to close your eyes. And just bring your awareness into your body first and notice how your body feels. And then just becoming aware of the breath in your body. Noticing where the breath is in the body. And then just begin slowing the breath right down. And then see if you can follow my count as you breathe in and out through the nose into your belly and lower ribs. Inhale, two, three, four, exhale, two, three, four, five, six, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. And then after this exhale, just let go of doing anything to the breath. Widening your awareness into the totality of your body. Noticing how it now feels to be in your body is maintaining that connection to your body and how you feel. And gently begin to open your eyes and come back.
for the space in which you're in. Thank you so much for that, James. Do you Pleasure. apply this on a day-to-day -day basis or do you? Yeah, I do. I do. If I'm ever feeling, which rarely happens at the moment, but if I'm feeling sort of overwhelmed or stressed or anxious, mm -hmm. then I might do a little bit to calm me down. Um, and then I like practicing in the evening for sort of five to 10 minutes at the moment. Um, and that will, my practice at the moment will simply be a, an inhale for the count of four and then an exhale for the count of four, which is about six seconds in, six seconds out. Mm. Um, in my sort of everyday as I'm walking around, I'll, I'll do stuff to try and increase my tolerance to build up a carbon dioxide. Um, so holding my breath whilst I'm walking, breathing in and out through the nose whilst I run, anything that helps to increase my tolerance to carbon dioxide. Amazing. Again, amazing tools to add to our toolbox and I'll give those a try as well, more than adding on to my day-to-day -day practice. Amazing. Thank you so much, James. I can't wait to follow your, your next developments, your updates on the app. Where can we find you? Where we can we find out more about your work? Instagram is probably the best place to start. It's brief of James on Instagram. And then if you would like to practice in your own time, I have an online studio on my website, which has lots of pre-recorded sessions. And then in hopefully the next few months, there'll be an app which you can practice to in there too. Amazing. Can't wait to check it out. Thanks, Amazing. James. Have a wonderful day. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this journey into the world of breathwork with James. Who knew there was so much intricacy in something so innate? Breathing. But thanks to James, these are accessible and tangible alterations we can make to our day-to-day -day lives to give our beautiful biocomputers some much-needed rewiring. Take the time to revisit the different breathwork techniques that James shared with us and experiment with them in your own practice. And remember, a slow and steady breath can be a powerful tool for maintaining balance and reducing stress. Until next time, stay curious and see what tools help you the most. I will make sure to put all the links below. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow, leave a review, subscribe and share to support the growth of the podcast, but most importantly, to see if this resonates and help others. I look forward to having you again with us on the next episode and until then, be well and be free.